Hey, uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, if Again, I, I'm going to echo what James had already said. Um, if you have kids in here and you're not ready to have conversations uh, on some adult types of things, um, go ahead and use the kids life over there. Um, because in 1 Corinthians 6, we're kind of jumping into some choppy waters uh, this morning of uh, conversations that um, are get a little bit complex, okay? Uh, and because we're doing that, I'm going to go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to give us grace in this conversation towards one another and grace in this conversation um, to just to hear what he has for us. So let's uh, spend some time in prayer. Father, this morning is uh, yours. And I'm going to ask that you would speak clearly uh, to us. Um, Father, we're talking about some things that are pretty difficult, um, things that uh, there are so many different opinions and ideas that are driven in different ways from experience or um, cultural milieu from just deep-set um, convictions from study and prayer. And so uh, because of that, Lord, we need, to meet, we need to have you meet us in this place to give us your understanding according to your word. I pray, Father, that you would uh, speak through me, speak clearly through me, um, and allow your truth to, to be heard. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I love that uh, Leslie was just talking uh, about the, the, the questions that he puts out on the board. Um, the idea of what is uh, morality? Is, is morality, is it subjective or is it objective? Um, because what we're talking about this morning is actually uh, found in the idea that there is a moral authority. That there is a morality that's not subjective, that it's actually objective and we can hold it true and we can build our lives and our lifestyle and live within the kingdom mindset because of that morality, okay? Um, and this morning, the, the idea of what we're talking about was we're talking about kingdom living in a sex-crazed world this morning. How about that for a title, huh? Kingdom living in a sex who, who just said woo? Yeah. Kingdom living in a sex if you want to trade positions, let's just rock this out. Uh, kingdom living in a sex crazed world. And, and if you're a guest this morning, um, I hope that doesn't scare you. Um, I hope that you're encouraged to know um, that we, uh, we don't dance around the text, right? That when the text leads us to talk about important things that have strong opinions one way or the other, that we are going to bring ourselves to the text. We're going to allow the text to speak clearly to us. That we're going to hold a position that we can have opinions. We can have opinions that differ with one another. And we can have strong opinions, but when our opinion differs from what the Word of God says, that it's not the Word of God that changes, it's us, us that come under the authority and the tutelage and the leading of God's Word and His truth so that our opinion might be changed and conformed to His thought, His design, His desire for how we live in the world that He's created. Does that make sense? If you're visiting with us, I hope that you know that we take God's truth seriously and we put ourselves under that truth. And so we are talking about this sex-crazed world. We're talking about how we live uh, as a kingdom-minded person in this world. And so just to give us kind of a recap of, of where we've been, if you haven't been here for a while or if you're new, we've been in First Corinthians for a few weeks now, and we've been looking at the church, and we've said that the church is God's masterpiece, right? And you're probably getting tired of hearing that phrase, that the church is God's masterpiece. But we're going to beat that drum all the way through the series because the church is God's masterpiece. And when we say that it's his masterpiece, here's what we mean. We, we mean that it's... Uh, we mean that it's his design. 
right? That he created it, that, that, it, that we didn't design it, we didn't put it together, it's his design, he created it, and he has an intent for the church. And the church is to grow up from the inside out, right? He has a desire for us that we're to mature together, so much so that we can fully experience the true life that he's given us. But also, not, not just this idea of us growing, but so that we, the church, can impact the culture wherever that church is planted in whatever culture it's planted in. So any church across America, any church around Asia or throughout the Middle East or anywhere else in the world, wherever that church is planted, it's planted there for the express purpose of helping individuals who call that church home to grow up to maturity and to impact the culture where it's at. So much so that the people in that community understand that there is a goodness of God that, that has come through not only his goodness, but through his son Jesus that has offered an opportunity to salvation, hope, peace, and unity wherever they are. Does that make sense? That we are as individuals change, but our community gets impacted as well. And that's his design. And what we've said throughout our time is the truth is though that the church gets messy. The, the church isn't always perfect. The church is dealing with some issues, but it doesn't change the fact that the church is still God's design, right? We, the church is God's plan A to impact the world. Okay, listen to me. The, there is no plan B. Look, look around you like we're it. The, those in this building, those in churches that are scattered around the world this morning or th this evening, we are his church. We are his plan A. And if we are his plan A and there's no backup plan, then the truth and the reality is that we're to grow up into maturity. We're to grow up and be who he's called us to be so that not only are we changed, but so that our culture and our surrounding community gets impacted. And one of the predominant themes that we've seen being played out over and over in, in the first five, six and a half chapters that we've been through is that Paul calls the church to live out of their new identity in Christ. Not to live as who they used to be, but to live out of this brand new identity that he's given them. See, there, there's a beauty of God that, that he's able to take people from all different walks of life, people that come from all over the place and have differing opinions on what morality is, different opinions on what truth is, different opinions on what sexual morality is. Think, think about it just in, in and of your own self. There, there are things that, that you hold to that are so significant to you that you would say, this is who I am. This is my identity. This is who God has made me to be. Or this is, if you just even take God out of the equation, this is just who I am. There are things that you hold so significant that you would attach all that you are to it. This is the thing. What has that been in your own life? And the beauty is that God can take people from all different walks of life who have placed their identity on their sexuality, whether they, they would uh, identify themselves as, as a heterosexual or a homosexual, that their identity has been placed in their, their womanhood or their manhood or their, their fatherhood or their motherhood. This is who I am. This is what I do. Based their identity out of their intellectualism, their identity in, in their work and who they are at work and who they are when they come home, that finding their identity in their ethnicity, where they come from, or their ethnicity in the color of their skin, saying, this is who I am. And the beauty of God is he takes people from all these different walks of life who have found their identity in all kinds of different things. And he brings them all together. And he gives this them incredibly brand new identity. Not attached to the old life, but attached to the new. And this new identity is called child of God. And in this brand new identity, he says, now go and live 
out of this new identity. Don't live like you used to be. Don't live out of the old life. Live out of who I've made you to be. Live like you belong to me. Live like you follow my desires. Live like you understand my design and my desires for life. But here's the thing, right? His way of living in his kingdom, under his economy, is often so radically, emphatically, amazingly different than the, the culture's view. It's so radically different than how we used to live out of our old identity and the things that our culture says, find your identity in these things. And the reality is that God brought people in Corinth Throughout all of life, people, even now, he's brought people out of the old kingdom where the main objective was solely based out of their individual hedonism, right? And when we say hedonism, we've talked about that a few different times. When we say hedonism, what we mean is that our appetites and our desires is the sole driver of our life. And so if I'm hungry for it, if I desire it, then there's nothing to stop me from doing it or getting it. And so I go after it. Whatever it is, wherever it is, whenever it is, I'm going after it, right? I'm going to feed that desire. I'm going to pursue it however I want it. And if it makes me feel good, then I'm going to do it. And there's an appeal to this style of life, isn't there? Because it makes you feel good because you are getting what you want when you want it. And so we can't lie to ourselves and say there's not an appeal to this old identity. There's not an appeal to this old way of life. But there's an appeal to it because what, what's so appealing to us is that we get to dictate what's right and what's wrong. We get to be the director and the master of our own universe. And who doesn't like to be the master of their own universe, right? We get to, we get to go after what we like. And we feel like we're in control of everything. And nobody, in fact, rules over us. While the whole time that we're saying nobody gets to rule over us, I do what I want and I go after what I want. The, the, the truth is, that the whole time we're enslaved to our appetites. We're enslaved to our desires. We're enslaved to our passions and the whims of the old identity. An identity that is often controlled by the changing morality of the culture. Now it's not hard for us to look over the course of history and to see that the morality of the culture is always changing. Like from decade to decade, from century to century, the morality has never been the same. It continues to move. And so what we call right right now was called wrong a hundred years ago. What we call wrong right now might have been right to some so long ago. And so in a culture where the morality continues to change like the sand of the seashores, right? Like trying to base your foundation of morality on this subjective truth of the culture. It's like building your house on the sand. It's not going to stand, right? And so we can't base our new life off of an old identity. We have to base it in this new identity. And so God broke the chains of this old kingdom and he brings people into his new kingdom, but there was this problem that was still standing there. His design and his way of life was so countercultural and so drastically different than what was actually going on in the city of Corinth. No different than what's going on in the complexity and the confusion of our culture even today. Think, think about it like this. I'm going to try to give, try to give a, a bit of a mental picture. If you're to build something, or, right, and, and that nobody's ever seen before, 
And, and, and people start picking it up and they start thinking about it. They don't know that you build it, but they start picking it up and thinking about it like, what does this thing do? I don't know what it's designed to do. What, what's it here for? And you got people jamming on, you got people pulling on different levers, seeing, does this work? Is this how it works? And, and, and they, they may be using it to do something with it, but it's definitely not what you designed it or desired for it to be. And then you come along, right? And you see them mess around like, oh my gosh, these guys are, they're jacked up. They have no idea what they're doing. And you say like, hey, I'm glad that you found that. Let me tell you how this thing works. And so you show them like, hey, if you pull this lever, then the door opens. And when that door opens, it opens up access to this thing. And you show them, this is the intricacies of what makes this thing work. And when you do it and use it like this, this is how it's best. And so the people who are playing with it, they, they can still, they can make a choice. Now that they know how the thing is designed, they say, wow, that's mesmerizing. I never, I didn't know that. They can choose to use it the way that it was designed, or they can choose to keep hammering on it and slamming on it and saying, well, I understand you designed it like this, but I think it would work better if you did it like this. I think it would be better if I were allowed to do this with it, and if I did this, it did that. See, the person who's receiving the design doesn't get to decide how the design works best. The person who designs it gets to figure out how the design works best. And so the culture in Corinth, they see and they understand that there's a way that things have been designed, and they understand that, but they're still pulling, they're still prodding and saying, I don't like the design. I want to do it the way that I want to do it. And what's happening is, just like in the Old Testament, people are doing whatever they want. Everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. And there's no objective morality that's been set. It's set on the changing culture of whatever culture's in place. And that's what's going on in, in Corinth here. They're just jamming at it. Instead of following his design, you have everybody looking at humanity. You have them looking at their relationships and their sexuality, trying to figure out how does this thing work, trying to figure it out for themselves. People with different kinds of opinions. Now listen to me, it's okay to have opinions. It's okay to say, I wish it were like this and I wish it were like that. But when our opinions come in contrast to God's word, it's not God's word that bows. It's his word that informs our opinions so that we might be able to grow and to mature into the life that he's called us to so that we can fully experience him and so that we can make the impact in the culture that he's designed for us to do. Like it doesn't work any other way. Now remember, we said that in the city of Corinth, the, 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 the city was, uh, it was like Las Vegas and like Los Angeles and New York all wrapped in the one. All the vices that are so hard for human beings to stay away from because of the appetites and desires that we have, right? To be satisfied. All the devices that are so hard to stay away from were ready available to anybody who was in that place. And so in, in this area, you've got this temple, that's set up to the goddess Aphrodite. And there are uh, estimated upward near a thousand prostitutes that are filling this temple on the inside and spilling out into the streets. And there is immorality happening in this place like has been seen nowhere else in the world, right? It's, it's, it's all going down there. And so men and women who are traveling by for business, men and women of the city who are lonely, who want to express themselves sexually, who have a release that they want to get rid of there was nothing and there's nothing in place to tell anybody you should not do this there's nobody standing there when they're heading to the temple to say you know what this is a poor life choice this is just not good for you like have you thought about how this is going to impact you how it's going to impact them how it's going to impact those around you that this just doesn't make any sense there was nobody standing there saying you ought to do something differently 
And Paul says, this is an issue, not only in the community, but this is an issue that's going on in the church. I've heard that you're not acting any differently, he'll say. You've been living in this sex-crazed society, in this environment for so long that everything that's going on seems natural, everything seems normal. There is nothing that seems to be off limits, and that seems to be okay for you. And Paul will spell this out in Romans chapter 1 if you want to write that down and do a little study later. He says there's no distinction in how the church is viewing sexuality. There's no distinction in how the church is viewing sexual relationships with one another in the midst of this sex-crazed world. And, and the church is not living any differently than the world around them. And when the church chooses not to live any differently than the world around them when it comes to their sexuality, when it comes to their sexual relationships, just like when it came to litigating one another and they were losing their influence in the community, he says the same thing. You're losing your influence. Because when the world sees you, they should see a different way of relating. They should see a different way of how you express yourself to one another with restraint, with uh, an idea that there is a perfect design that's been in place. The world should see something different. Says they're not seeing anything different and it's impacting the culture negatively. You're, you're being changed by the culture rather than allowing you the way that I've planted you to impact the culture. And you're losing your influence in the community. And it was a real situation for them then. And I think this is a real situation for us in our community even today. It, it's hard for us. Like this is a difficult conversation. It's a messy conversation. But it's the same thing going on here that was going on in Corinth as well. And so what I want to do is I want to read verse 9 out of chapter 6. And then we'll, we'll uh, kind of move from there, okay? Verse 9. Everybody with me? Okay. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We left off in verse 8 last week, and some of you were reading ahead. You're like, oh, he's going to dodge this one, huh? No, no, we're picking it back up. We're picking up verse 9. Or you, you don't know, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. This is where he says, this is who you used to be. This is what you used to find your identity in, but that's changed. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And what Paul is doing here is he's, torn, he's turning the corner out of this litigation relationship or conversation and he's moving into a conversation in, in regards to this sex-crazed society and he's addressing the individual sexuality and the sexual relationships that are going on inside the church, right? This isn't all that he talks about in 9-11. I've read commentaries and I've read other people trying to explain this and this is all that they want to focus on. There are some other things there, but the whole concept is that they, there's breakdown in the relationships that are going on in the church and they're not living according to God's design. But he will jump into after verse 11, he's going to dive straight into the idea of the sexual relationships, the sexuality, how this thing works out. And so this isn't going to be just about heterosexuality or, or homosexuality and what constitutes those two. It's what Paul is going to do to address this question, this overriding question. Will God's people let God lead them in every area of their life according to his great design. Let me say that again. Will God's people allow God to lead them in every single area of their life according to his great design, even in their sexual relationships, even in their sexuality, or are they just going to do what everybody else is doing? 
Or are they just going to follow the culture into this, um, this cultural milieu? Are they going to let God? See, because if God can get a hold of our sexuality, if our sexuality and our sexual relationships can come under him, this tends to be the, the, the greatest appetite and desire that we have. This Where hedonism plays itself out is, I want what I want when I want it, and I'm going to go after it. And if God can get a hold of this and he can lead us in this area, it's pretty much a done deal that he's going to be able to lead in every single, every, every single, every other area of our life. Right? Now, but this is where it gets messy. Because there's not an aspect of our, of our life that hasn't been touched by sin, right? Every single area of our life has been touched by sin, even in the way that we view sexual relationships, even in the way that we view sexuality. There, there's a lot, there's nothing that hasn't been touched. And so um, there's confusion with uh, what gender relationship looks like. There's gender confusion, there's gender dysphoria, there's homosexuality, there's same-sex attraction, there's people trying to battle with, is, is this right? Is this wrong? How do we explain this? Is it biblical? Is it not biblical? Is there a standard for this? And so because sin has touched every single area, this gets dicey. And so the fact that we're even talking about this, some of you are sitting there, you're, you're, you're already angry that I've got, that, that I'm speaking on this issue or that my idea might be different from yours, or you're, you're, you're applauding the idea in your mind that he's talking about this because he's going to approve my view. Like this is so controversial in our area and so divisive and, and, and it's, it's been a big issue in not only our culture here, but our culture around the world and it was going on in Corinth as well. It's such a messy conversation. I think there's morality that guides us into this, okay? Hear that. I think there's morality, but it doesn't mean that, that, that relationships are, aren't, uh, that, that relationships don't get negatively or positively affected because of this conversation between brothers and sisters in Christ and our relationship to non-believers in the community, okay? This is so dicey. And so I'm going to read the rest of chapter six, and I want you to hear how the community would have heard it. I want you to hear how the church would have heard these words. And I also want you to hear in, the, in our cultural milieu as well, how do we hear and how do we respond to this? How does it resonate with us? Here, here's what Paul says. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I'm, I'm not dominated by anything. I'm not going to be controlled by anything. I'm not going to be overpowered by anything here. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. You can hear the argument that people are having in themselves and how they act. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, what Paul's getting at in, in verse 13 is he's giving an, an eternal perspective. Right? He, he's wanting people to understand that there's an eternal reality that's happened in, in their salvation in Christ that plays out in how they live now. So because you know what's going to happen in the future, because you know that Christ has been raised, and because you know that he's going to raise you as well, it should impact how you live today. The reality of what we know to be true of him and what we know to be true of us because of him, it should impact how we live according to his desires, his design, and his passions. Right? And so that's what he's getting at there. Our future reality should impact now. Live in of that eternity. We talked about that in our uh, series through Philippians. Do you not know in verse 15 that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spear with him. Flee from sexual immorality. 
flee from it. He's saying, run, go away, go the opposite direction. Every other sin is, every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have, who, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And so glorify God in your body. And so what Paul is saying, he's saying there's a price that's been paid for your life. You have been joined with Christ. And so how can you unjoin yourself with him to join yourself with a prostitute? And, and the idea is like in the cultural milieu, it's joining themselves with the, the cultural um, immorality, the sexual immorality and the, and the confusion that's going on in the community. And so we apply that to our, our own life. And how can we not just uh, attach ourselves to a prostitute when we've been connected with Christ, but how do we live in sexually immoral ways when we identify as a Christ follower? when we've been given a brand new identity and Paul is calling this out. See, when, when we start talking about the issues of sex and sexuality, we, we all start from, a, a lot of us start from a different place and a lot of us are ending in a different place. And because I know that there's so much, um, there's so much angst and, and anger and, 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 and joy, like there's so many different feelings when it comes to this um, conversation, what I want to do is I want to take us back to Genesis real quick, because I want to show us God's design from, from the beginning before we start to unpack the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, okay? Is, is that everybody okay with that? Let's, let's take it back so we can go forward. I think what's happened is the culture has hijacked God's design and desire, and the Christian community has been seen as prudish or old-fashioned or, or bigoted or, and hatred towards one another. Like We don't love one another if we hold to a biblical design of, of sexuality and of sexual relationships. So what I want to do is I want to show that Christians aren't prudish. Christians aren't. The family of God is, is, is not um, bucking against something, but we're wanting to hold out for what's truly great about this area of life, okay? And, and so Genesis 1, you go all the way back. You have God in the beginning, right? He creates everything. He creates everything. Before anything was going on, God creates a world where he inhabited it, and uh, thinking about the world as it's going to go down for the rest of eternity. And in this place, he creates a man and a woman. You've probably heard of them. They're pretty famous. And he creates Adam and Eve, right? And uh, he creates them, and they're right there in the middle of the garden. And God says words in the middle of the garden that would make you and me crazy, hot, and tingly if we were sitting there in the middle of the garden. And we heard these words in the appropriate context, right? Like we would be ready to go when we heard this. And, and so here's the setting. They're completely naked, completely unashamed sitting there in the garden. I want you to try to imagine this type of freedom if you can. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no social confusion. He's not thinking about what she's thinking or who he's, she's thinking about. She's not thinking about who he's thinking about or what's going on in his mind. There is nothing but purity in this relationship. There's no worrying about the extra pounds they're getting ready to pack on because of Thanksgiving coming around, all right? Just not worried about it. They are completely open with one another. And in their nakedness, Genesis 1.28 says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now, I think we all know what that means, right? Do we need to explain what be fruitful and multiply means? I mean, I will, right? Thank you. This, this, isn't, this isn't God saying, hey, go find a nice little, a nice little uh, path out in the garden and just go have a nice little walk. This is God giving Adam and Eve the green light to go enjoy each other sexually. 
He, he's given them the green light and he says, go be fruitful and go multiply. It's him saying, look, I've created you. I've wired you. I've put desire in you for one another. Now go and enjoy each other. And while you're enjoying each other, hey, have some babies while you're at it. Fill this earth so that they can experience goodness, so that they can experience joy as well. And in this setting, and in these short words, what you have is a God who is completely and solely involved in creating the design for sexual relationships, the design for sexuality, and he's designing how everything works, the implications for sex, the implications for our sexuality, creating the form, creating the function, creating uh, the morality of how sexual practice and how relationships are supposed to work. This is the intent. This is the, this is the design that God has given by a very good designer. But what I also want to point out in Genesis is that God's design wasn't just merely a physical act, okay? It was much more than that. In Genesis 2, 24, if you want to turn over there, as God is handing Eve over to Adam and about to give him full responsibility for taking care of her and loving her and treating her well, he says these words, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I want you to underline those words, one flesh. Those words come from the Hebrew word basar, okay? And basar, is used, as it's used there, it means much more than just the physical act of sex. Although the physical act of sex is included in this area, okay? There's this emotional, relational, spiritual connection that gets all wrapped up into this. This is all a part of that. It's all tied up into it. So, man, this is why when you, you haven't emotionally connected with your wife for a while, and, and you start to try to put on all those moves. You know, the moves that always work. There's one like, this is the key. This is the one that unlocks everything. And, you, and no matter how many push-ups you do, no matter how many curls you do, no matter how many sit-ups you do, before you pull off the shirt and you turn out the lights, if you haven't emotionally connected with your spouse before those lights go out, you may do the physical act, but there's some disconnect there because there hasn't been an emotional connection that's taken place. If it happens... It's not fulfilling for you, usually, and it's usually not fulfilling for her. And God designed it this way, because it's not just about the physical act. And, and this is what's happened historically in the city of Corinth, and I would say that this is what's happened pervasively in our culture today. We've redefined sex as merely a physical act, and rather as something to, to be enjoyed that, that's been designed by God. We've defined it as a merely physical act and something just simply to feed my desire whenever I want it, whenever I want it. You need to be available. And if you're not available, I'm going to go to somebody else so that they can be available. And if nobody else is available, I'll just do it by myself. This is the culture that has, been, that has changed what the physical or changed what the design and desire of sex. But God's design for sex is so much greater than what the culture says. God's design for our sexuality is so much greater than what the culture says. They don't get to define what's right and what's wrong because God has already done that. What God has designed is that when a man and a woman, and I, and I say this intentionally, okay? I, I say man and a woman, and I know that that brings some tension inside of some people, that, that we would be so exclusive and, 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 and straight-lined. Like that. I know that that's difficult. It doesn't mean that we can't have a conversation. We can't love brothers and sisters who don't agree with this. But when I say man and woman, I think that this is what we get to biblically, okay? When a man and a woman who are in a covenantal marriage to one another, committed to each other, and are emotionally and spiritually connected with each other, when they engage in the physical act of sex, what happens is 
That's where the magic happens. That's where true satisfaction comes from because that's where God designed it. Anything else from that, anything where there's just a physical act without any emotional or spiritual connection, there, there may be moments of euphoria, right? There may be moments of where you feel like you've got a sexual conquest or where you feel good because you're in control of your own situation and you're doing it the way that you want. There may be this moment of, of euphoric expression, but God's design gets cheapened and the action gets perverted. Okay, listen to me, teenagers that are in the room and men who are in the room. Women, everybody listen. If you're watching at home, listen to this, okay? When desire and attraction lead to the physical act of sex, but there is no emotional or relational commitment that is surrounded in the context of marriage, we cheapen the design of sex. We destroy and pervert the design. And what ends up happening is you hurt yourself and you hurt others. You lose your reputation in the community. You lose your reputation and your ability to impact the culture the way God has designed you to impact the culture. Because you're standing on a moral basis that is shifting. You're not standing on a morality that doesn't change. Right? The culture is going to change. The Lord doesn't change. And this area doesn't change for us. Okay? God's design is that there would be a commitment that says, I love you. I'm here for you. I'm not leaving you. I'm building into you. And, and sex in that context becomes the overflow of a committed relationship that is surrounded in the context of marriage. And sex isn't the driver of a relationship where it's not just my appetite. I'm going after whatever I want. Now, now here's, here's where we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, okay? This, this is the, the application, I think, for our lives. And my watch just buzzed, and I'm like halfway through, right? So I'm going to try to speed this up as, as fast as I can. All right, so we're, we're swinging back around. This isn't how relationships were happening in Corinth. And this isn't how relationships, I think, happen in our context right now. In fact, I think relationships uh, like this aren't even in anywhere near on the picture. Uh, what I think what we have, we have this animalistic, this hedonistic, I have an urge and whoever's in front of me, however I want to release it, however I want to go after it is okay with me, whether it be male, whether it be female, whether it be self, however it is, I have this urge and I'm going to feed it. And then that's not everyone, but the cultural milieu, the cultural progression has said, this is okay. And anything else outside of that, if you hold to a biblical design, if you hold to a way that says there's a moral authority that isn't structured in the context of our culture, it's just laughable. It's laughable that you would think so old-fashioned. It's laughable that you would be so bigoted. It's hatred that you would, that you would, that you would say that a loving relationship can't happen between a man and a woman. No, not say, or between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. It's not saying that a loving relationship can't happen. We're just saying that it's not God's design. It's not God's best. This isn't how it was designed to work. Can a man love a man? Yes, a man can love a man. Can a woman love a woman? Yes, a woman can. Can we love brothers and sisters who disagree with us in this? Yes, we can love brothers and sisters who disagree. But does it fall in line with the biblical design for, for sex and sexuality? No, it doesn't. And, and so this is what Paul is pointing to. Are we going to let the culture direct the way that we view sex and sexuality or... Are we going to allow the Lord to lead us in every area, not just our sexuality, but every single area of our lives, okay? So I want to point out just a couple things here um, in the back half of chapter 6. I'm going to try to speed through. Uh, look at verse 11. Paul says, again, this is who you used to be. You, you used to be in the old kingdom. You used to be governed by your gut. 
You used to be governed by sexuality and desire. You used to find your identity in in what went in and out of your body, literally, right? You used to be enslaved to your desires, but your identity is no longer the same. Your identity has changed. There's been a difference in you. You used to be. You used to find your identity in your physical appearance. You used to find your identity in your sexuality, whether it be heterosexual or homosexual, Uh, whether you struggle with same-sex attraction or you struggle with gender confusion or dysphoria. You used to be characterized. This is what you used to find your identity in. You used to find your identity on the outside and things that you practiced on the inside. But he says your identity is not found in your body. Your identity is not found in your sexuality. It's not found in your promiscuity. It's not found in any of that. You have been given a brand new identity and it's founded in Christ. That's what your your identity, if you have trusted Christ, will never change from that. And to try to say my identity is something else is to undo what God has done. Not that we can undo his salvation, but it's to find identity and to practice life outside of what he has said is true of us, right? So we live in what's true of us. And so we don't buy the lie that our appetites get to tell you who you are. We don't buy the lie that we have to listen to, to uh, um, who God, we don't, or so we, we don't buy the lie that we, uh, li- that we have to listen to what culture says that we are. We listen to who God says that we are and we allow him to take our appetites and our urges and our desires and to bring them under the tutelage and the processing of maturity in his word and in the context of godly men and women in community so that we can live rightly amongst one another. We don't just follow what the culture says is right. We follow what scripture says is, is right here. And Paul says, this is who you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Our lifestyle should match who we've become. And so you don't have to be controlled any longer by your desire. And for some of you, that's all that you need to hear. Like, like from everything that we just heard, whether it be in your sexuality, whether it be in your eating appetites, whether it be in how you see yourself, whether it be how you see the world, you don't have to be controlled by a desire. You don't have to be controlled by an impulse. You you just don't, right? There was a phrase that was thrown around uh, Corinth, everything's permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. And he also said in verse 13, He said, food is meant for the stomach and stomach meant for the food. And what he was saying in these contexts is there were people who were throwing this out like this was this get out of jail free card for you to live whatever immoral lifestyle that you wanted to. I have the freedom to do whatever I want to do. I can live however I want. It may not be great. It may not be good for me. It may not be good for it. But there's nobody who can tell me that I can't live the way that I want to live. And you've probably heard this with your kids. You maybe even have said it yourself. It's this childish mentality that nobody is the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. I'm the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. And this is so childish. But when we say something like this, that you don't get to be the boss of me, that the scriptures don't get to be the boss of me, you know what happens? Is we still have a boss. The boss becomes our appetite. The boss becomes our desire. And so we give in to what our body craves and we give in to what our mind craves instead of saying, you know what, even if I want that, even if my desire is for that, I'm going to set that aside because I'm not going to be controlled by anything. I'm going to live in the submission and control under the rule and the reign of Christ, not under anything else. And so I'm not going to allow my body to tell me what, what it's going to have. I'm going to allow the Lord to tell me, like, are these desires right? Some of them are. But do we have to follow every impulse that we have? No, 
No, no, we don't. Let me remind you that in Corinth, there, there were um, prostitutes everywhere, right? They're all over the place. There are men and women are both going into this place. People of the community and people of the church as well. There was no difference. The church wasn't acting any different than what the society was. And Paul says, no, this isn't how we live. Everything may be permissible for you, but not everything is beneficial for you. But what sense would it make to be set free from Christ, to be brought into this family, only to put chains and bondages back on yourself that you're going to be controlled and ruled and reigned by your appetites and your sexual desires? And so there's a question that comes out of this context that I think that the church in Corinth had to ask themselves, and I think that we have to ask ourselves even now. I think if we want to grow as individuals, and I think if we want to grow um, healthy as a church that's actually making an impact in our culture, there's a question. Is this action, is this behavior, is this impulse, if I follow it, is it going to lead me towards growth and maturity? Or is it going to break down my maturity? Is going to break down my reputation in the community? Is it going to break down my reputation and my ability to influence the community for Christ? Is it going to enslave me to my appetites? Is it going to enslave me to impulses and, and indulgences? Am I going to be ruled by anything? Or am I going to live under Christ, right? Is it going to, is it going to grow me or is it going to hurt me? And what Paul says is if the answer for us is that it's going to hurt, if it's going to break down our relationship with him, if it's going to keep us out of his design and his will for our sexuality and for sexual relationships, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Turn around and run. And the idea of fleeing is so active. If you, if you, remember, if you remember the Old Testament at all, you remember that there's a story of, of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Y'all remember that story? Like Joseph is, uh, like Potiphar's wife, like she's sweating on Joseph hard, right? She, she wants him. And so every time she sees him, she's throwing himself at, at him. And, and he's like, no, I can't. That's, that, that, that's, not, that's not good for me. I'm not going out there. You belong to my master. I'm just not doing it. And one time he walks in the house and dude, like she's naked. She's got nothing on. And, and, and Potter's like, whoa. And he turns around to get ready to run. He's like, I'm not having anything to do with this. And she grabs his cloak and throws it on the ground as he flees. Like, peace out. I'm gone. He doesn't even stop to grab the deal. Like, he flees as fast as he can. Like, he's running away. She's like, look what he did. He's like, I didn't do any of that. Uh-uh. I did what I was supposed to do. I turned around and I ran. Paul says, if you're dealing with this, flee. Run as fast as you can. Don't stick around. Get away from this. Run after Christ. It's hard to run after impurity when you're running after Jesus, isn't it? It's hard to run after the wrong thing when you're running after the right thing. And so Paul says, flee sexual immorality. I've heard people uh, talk about uh, when they were in Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam vets come back and they talk about what the, the situation, not just in war, but when they were, had free time and were walking around the streets, that there were women that would throw themselves at them to, to try to get them to come in and have sex with them. And so they would, uh, they would stand in the doorways and as the soldiers would walk by, they would physically grab them to pull them into their little sex shop or to pull them into their house to, to entice them. And, and, and if a dude wanted to, he could stay or he would have to physically pull himself away to get out of there as fast as possible. We may not be walking through the streets of Saigon. We may not be walking through the streets where people are physically pulling us in. But if you have a device, you have a screen, something is pulling at you. If you have a computer that you can push on, something 
is pulling at you. If you've got friends in your life that aren't sold out to you following Christ and that are challenging you to do what you ought not do, you've got people that are pulling at you. And Paul says, run. Run as fast as you can. Run towards Jesus so you don't run towards what's wrong. Here's something that we have to remember. Just because we have certain normal desires, uh, God-given desires, it, it doesn't mean that they have to get satisfied when and however we want. We talked about that. Sex inside of, of a biblical marriage is intended to be the place where these natural desires get met and are carried out. Anything apart from that is to cheapen the act and to cheapen the design of that, and we miss the impact that we can have in the culture. But some of you might be saying, well, yeah, but I'm not married. Like, I've got these impulses, and I've got these desires, but I'm not married yet. Or I'm engaged, right? Like, we're close enough to the finish line, right? Why should we do, like, can't we? Can't, can we do that? Let me tell you, l- listen, listen to me. It is worth the wait. For those of you who have broken that place, and, and that you've had a commitment where you said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop. You've understood that in that break, that it was worth the wait, and for those of you who, who have been pure until you got married, you understood, man, it was worth the wait. And if you've broken these bonds, if these have been torn down and you didn't wait, if you didn't say, I'm going to flee, if you didn't say, I'm going to hold on, listen, it's never too late to start making the right choices now, to start moving towards God's design, okay? But it's worth the wait. The people around you may not say it's worth the wait. The people around you may be chopping on you and saying, listen, if you don't do this, like you're not cool. If you don't do this, like, like you're on the outside or you're not loving to live any differently. Like you're just so antiquated. Don't listen. It is worth the wait. It's always worth the wait to hold out for his design, to hold out for his design and to find obedience in that. Yeah, but shouldn't you like, shouldn't you test drive the car before you get married? Shouldn't you test, like you should know what you're getting into, right? Yeah. You should test drive the car. Test drive the car. But people aren't cars, right? People are not cars. There are emotions and feelings that get wrapped up into the act of sex. It's not just physical. When we choose not to wait, we're saying that we know better than God, that we know better than his design. And we put ourselves into this mentality to say, you know what, I know better than him. And you know what, God's gracious and he's going to forgive me anyway, so I'm just going to go after, I'm just going to do it. And two things happen when we live with that kind of mentality. This, I'm going to broker my own life. What happens is, um, one, we cheapen the experience, and two, we leave destruction wherever we go. It hurts you and it hurts others. Um, there's a guy by the name of uh, Kevin Lamont who, who's written on all types of ideas on sex and sexuality and marriage and, and what works. And Ashley and I, we were reading this book before we got married called Sheet Music. If, if, you, want, if you want an interesting read, <laughs> go read Sheet Music. It is very vivid. Uh, but one of the things that he says... Don't read it unless you're ready to get married, okay? Um, one of the things that he says in this destructive mentality of just living un- for, for multiple lovers and just not caring about any design whatsoever is that when you get married, you meet all of those lovers under the pillow. That you may be with your wife or you may be with your husband, but everything that you've done prior to that, it's so hard to get away from. And so you might be trying to have uh, a, a meaningful sexual relationship with your spouse, But all these memories and all these things are going on in your mind that you just can't get rid of. And Paul says, flee, flee. Don't take this garbage in. And if if you have, like, spend some time with the Lord. Lord, forgive me and lead me into this place where I'm not going to live in this this aspect anymore. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to follow you in to what obedience looks like. Okay. What about feelings that are different than everybody else's? 
I know that people are telling me that you're supposed to like the opposite gender and you're supposed to um, have feelings for, for the appropriate sex. But my feelings are just so much different. They don't feel like they're supposed to feel. And, and here's what I would say. Y'all, we're living in a post-fall world, right? We're living in a post-fall world, which means that sin has impacted every area of our lives, even down to what we feel is normal and what we feel is natural sexually and what we feel is natural in our sexual sexuality and, and gender choices, right? And because of that, feelings and desires, they, they, they don't always reflect what's true. Even when those feelings are strong, even when those feelings are so impulsive that you feel like you have to go after them, if the desires and the feelings are not matching what God's word says, you have to make the decision to not enslave yourself back to something that he's already set you free from, right? Our feelings don't get to dictate what truth is because our feelings can be all jacked up sometimes, okay? We follow what God's word says. And I am way over my time. There's so much more to say. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to read the rest of chapter 6 because what he's going to do is he's going to get into what one, one flesh union looks like and how can we join ourselves to anybody else when we've already been united with him. He gets back into this identity piece to live out of this and again, to flee from things that we shouldn't be a part of. But what I, what I want to do is as we close, like there, this is heavy stuff. This is confusing stuff. And, and, and I wade through this and I read through this and it's not popular in our culture to have a view that's different than our culture. But we're not here to appease the culture, right? We're here to live under God's truth and to impact the world for him. And so my prayer is, if, if that your ideas don't align with what scripture says, that you would bring those ideas and opinions under the truth of scripture. If there's anger or angst in you over anything that I've said, we can sit down and we can have a conversation on that. And, but, the, but I would ask you like, to spend some time with the Lord and see why is there anger? Why is there angst? And, and, and listen to me, if, you have, if this hasn't been your reality, like if you haven't been sexually pure, if you haven't walked in closeness with the Lord on this, and this hasn't been your, your experience, I, I want you to know that there, there's a God who is, is gracious. And, and he is able to right what's been wronged. He's given you a brand new identity and he calls you. He doesn't change your identity, right? Your, your, your past doesn't control who you are. The Lord controls who you are and he says that you're his and he's given you grace and he's given you life and you can move forward in that. So if that hasn't been your past, it can start to be your present right now. Okay, let me pray. Father, with angst in our hearts, we sometimes have to make difficult decisions to follow you. Uh, I mean, it's not always easy. And so um, it's straightforward, I think, in your word, but it's not always easy to apply. And so in this area of our life, give us grace towards brothers and sisters. Let us not break relationships with brothers and sisters, but let us hold tight to what is true. Because if we want to grow as individuals and if we want to grow as a church in health, Father, this kind of stuff is important. This is kingdom living. This is living out of who we are, living out of our identity. And so would you give us the, the freedom to do that? Give us the audacity to live boldly for you. Give us the audacity to graciously stand against the culture, but to stand against the culture and to live wholeheartedly for you. Father, where we need to run, let us run. Where we need to just sprint out of a scenario, let us sprint. I pray that people in our room, in our midst, who have walked in the darkness, 
Father, would choose to walk in the light and to feel the freedom there, the freedom to obey, the freedom to, to experience the truth and goodness in you. They wouldn't hold on to, to the garbage. They wouldn't buy the lie that it's better over here, that we would believe the truth, that in your design, this is where true life lies. This is where true satisfaction lies. So give us the audacity to follow you. Give us the audacity to stand strong. Give us the audacity to make hard decisions and to have hard conversations if we have to have them. Father, we're going to do that in your grace and in your power. I pray in your, in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.